This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy on this week's episode of Meet and Three through four unique stories. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language. I'll have something like Japanese knockweed and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're, they're foreigners, they're invasive, and, you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them. We're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us and they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented and these are the plants that can deal with that. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host, Ethan Frisch, and my guest this week is Heather Merrill Thomason, butcher and founder of Primal Supply Meats. Heather, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's just jump in. What is Primal Supply Meats and how did you come to start the company? Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's not waste any time. <laughs> okay. Uh, Primal Supply Meats is a modern butchery uh, based in Philadelphia. And essentially, we have a commitment to sourcing directly from local farmers, uh, working with local processors, and you know, buying, cutting, and selling whole animals. Uh, so essentially, we've been working to build up our own regional supply chain to serve the city and surrounding area of Philadelphia. And and what was your background? How did you how did you get into this business? How did you become a butcher in the first place? Um, well, I like to say I took a flying leap off of a career cliff um, because I was not always a butcher. I was not even working in food. Um, I actually was a graphic designer. It's what I studied in college and um, spent my 20s working uh, in New York City in graphic design. I eventually started my own design firm uh, with my husband in 2008. And about four, yeah, three, three years in, um, I started to kind of consider, you know, <laughs> how is this working? <laughs> what do I want to do next with my life? Uh, but meanwhile, um, I have always forever been super invested in local food. It's just um, kind of, I've never really known another way. I've, I've cooked, I've loved food my whole life. And as an adult, um, starting in my early 20s, you know, when I started to make my own choices and buy my own food, um, I started joining CSAs, uh, local food co-ops, shopping at the farmer's market, things like that. So, you know, all throughout my my 20s in that decade that I worked as a graphic designer on the side, you know, I was always thinking about food, shopping for food, you know, kind of being involved in my local food community and cooking. And um, I just at a certain point started to kind of have this sort of, I guess, kind of open mind of like, hmm, what do I, what do I really want to do? And, and what do I want to be involved in? And meanwhile, I had started to um, befriend some farmers, farmers at the farmer's market who were selling meat because it was something as a consumer that I was really interested in, in, in buying local traceable pasture-raised meat. And there just wasn't a whole lot of it. You know, uh, I lived in Park Slope at the time and I could, I was a member at the Park Slope Food Co-op and it was super interesting to see that, you know, they, they did a really great job of sourcing local from a couple of different farms, but it was this weird thing where like all the meat would hit the shelves and then it would be there for a few days and then it would sort of get chopped down or it would move to the freezer and then that was it for a while. And meanwhile, you would go to the farmer's market and the only thing you could buy was frozen meat. And I would talk to the farmers there and sort of just learn about all of the issues that they were having in their own you know, sort of small supply chains between what happened to these animals on the farm and how did they get to us, the customers that wanted it. And I started learning more about sort of, I guess, how broken the supply chain was in that you know, this farmer that I was um, friends with, Ray Bradley, who's, uh, you know, was selling at the farm at the Park Slope, uh, sorry, yeah, Grand Army Plaza Farmer's Market in Park Slope, was telling me that, you know, he would raise, his brother would breed piglets for him. And he would bring like a litter of piglets, like a 12 or so, onto his farm twice a year. And it was beautiful. He had woods, you know, he'd take the veggie compost from the farm and feed them and he'd raise 12 pigs and he'd take them to the butcher and get them cut and packed and pack them into his freezer and then every week pack them up and bring them to the farmer's market. But the problem was that the slaughterhouse where he would go where he was only a customer twice a year. Um, the slaughterhouses in our region that are small are so overwhelmed and they're really 
overbooked, just always. You know, the, the slaughterhouse that I currently work with, they close their schedule a whole year in advance. So if you're not there all the time, if you don't really have any like buying power or kind of leverage to like hold slots there, you just, they just really don't care. And it's just because they're just kind of at capacity and there's so much, you know, there's more business than they can handle. So someone like Ray, a small farmer, would have to plan based on a calendar date, you know, eight months, a year in advance. Okay, I think I'm going to need to bring in six pigs on this date. Now, like, you know, we're talking about living beings being raised on pasture in nature. It's not, it doesn't work on calendar dates. <laughs> you know, so it's like that specific date that it's use it or lose it with the processor the pigs might not be grown quite yet, or maybe they've grown really quickly and they're totally fat and they should have gone in a month before. So, you know, there's no control there. And that's really um, kind of a shame with all of these, you know, thoughtful inputs to not harvest an animal when it's at its best, you know, because if, if you put all that into it and you harvest it early and it doesn't have any fat, it's just sort of a waste. And if you let it get too fat and it's got, you know, sort of excessive four inches of back fat that customers don't want to eat on pork chops and you cut that all off and you have waste, a loss, you know, so, so that was one thing. And then the way even that they cut and packed his meat, you know, they're, they're a busy processor and they have a way they do things. So it's like, you know, check which cuts you want. How do you, how do you want to get this pig back in, in parts and pieces? And every time there was things that didn't sell. So, you know, at the end of, after he sold through all the pork that he had for a few months, you know, at the market piece by piece frozen out of the back of the truck, the same couple of things that the customers didn't want were always left. And that processor that he's working with was like, whatever, buddy, that's how we cut it. Like, no, we're not going to do it differently. So, you know, I just started to kind of learn firsthand about this, that there really wasn't like service or care or I guess capacity, you know, it's like not trying to paint a picture that these processors are, you know, terrible, uncaring, you know, businesses or people. It's just, you know, they're overwhelmed. So, you know, and, and meanwhile, um, Fleischer's opened their first butcher shop in Park Slope. And I saw this thing happen where they just filled a need so immediately, you know, suddenly they were busy from the second they opened the door. And I had friends that knew I loved to cook and knew that I cared about, you know, sort of uh, local meat. And they'd be like, Heather, you got to go check this place out. You, it's so cool. They have all this fresh meat and it's all local and you can even get stuff like lamb neck. <laughs> so I just, I think over the course of, you know, a year or so, as I was sort of in my own life, kind of considering, do I want to keep sitting at computers, working on design deadlines, clients simultaneously, you know, just getting more invested and curious about how it was that this food, particularly the pasture raised meat was coming to me and sort of discovering all of these uh, broken parts in the process and, and chain and then seeing how a single business was able to kind of, you know, fix some things or at least fill a niche or a void in the market. I just kind of had an aha moment and I really didn't know how I was going to do it. But the thought that I had was like, damn, I think if I could learn butchery, you know, if I could really understand meat processing, maybe I could help fix this. So, you know, long story short is that I basically set off on the pursuit of, hey, I don't work in food and I don't have any professional experience, but please, can I be your apprentice um, <laughs> to butchers? They're busy. There aren't that many of them. It didn't work. I found a farmer instead. I spent a year farming. Um, then I did eventually land an apprenticeship in Berkeley, California, and I moved and I, I trained as a butcher. And I made my way all the way back to Philadelphia, <laughs> where I helped open a butcher shop. And um, so over the course of about five years, I did personally learn, train, invest myself in, you know, sort of uh, the, the craft butchery and small kind of niche meat processing to get to the point where I was managing butcher shops and starting to build up my own supply chain in Philadelphia. And ultimately Primal Supply was kind of five years later, my version of looking at the city of Philadelphia and seeing a lot of the same issues that there are amazing farmers and resources right outside of us in, you know, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Maryland, either, even which we're surrounded by. And, you know, there's great producers, there's incredible land, but at the same time, you know, there's only frozen meat in coolers at the farmer's market or the couple of local um, sort of aggregators and purveyors like companies like Lancaster Farm Fresh uh, don't have the capacity to sell meat fresh. You know, they were just selling it frozen and that's not what restaurants want. So I basically learned not only how to cut meat, but I learned how to work with farmers and I learned how to work with slaughterhouses and I learned about refrigerated trucking and all these things. And I, I built up my own little micro supply chain for a single butcher shop and restaurant. And my, my aha moment was, well, hell, like if I can do this, my farmers have more animals, there's room in these trucks. Maybe I should start thinking about a thing that could, could scale and really 
kind of stay, take that step back and work on the supply chain aspect of things, which everybody kind of takes for granted. You know, they walk into your beautiful butcher shop and they never think about how, how you got that steak there, you know, from what was on the ground. So yeah, Primal Supply was really a response to that. And so, you know, I say that we're a modern butchery because I really have spent a lot of time learning, um, you know, sort of how things work in traditional models, uh, craft models, you know, larger sort of more, not, I won't say industrial, but sort of larger format models. And I've kind of picked and chosen and borrowed what I thought were the successful components of that and tried to abandon or re- rethink some of the things that didn't work. And I've, I've built this new business model that, that we have, you know, we have our own direct, direct sourcing uh, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, wow, that's that's quite a story, and and a lot of well, and a lot of uh, you've you've stopped in a lot of interesting places along the way. Um, I, I I did just before we uh, get totally off the topic, I wanted to ask about the process of entrepreneurship. Having having started your own graphic design business, having you know having done this before in a in a totally different industry, uh, what what lessons were you able to draw from that experience to apply to starting Primal Supply or? Or was it completely different and, and it felt like you were really starting from scratch? Um, yeah, I guess, you know, it's funny because I, um, it took me a really long time to even apply the term entrepreneur to myself, although I re- guess I've really always been that way. <laughs> um, like I, you know, I started a graphic design business because I was, you know, I was working for other firms and I started to have my own clients and do some freelance and you know, I just kind of got to this point where it was like 50% of my work was independent. And there was that, you know, sort of, should I take the leap and and make this my own thing? But it was very small. You know, uh, we started a design studio that, um, it still exists today, although my husband runs it now as sort of a one-man web design firm. Uh, but back, back in the day, the biggest we ever were was five people, including the two of us, (laughs) you know, so I was, um, you know, I have a lot of experience in project management as a designer, and I think just as like a person and kind of a problem solver, troubleshooter, I like to like sort of, you know, look at problems and design solutions to them. Um, and I guess so many of those qualities are entrepreneurial, but I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. And, you know, even the idea that when I learn about other people's businesses, you know, as someone who, the, the, the sort of food person that, that befriended, you know, sort of farmers and producers and started asking questions because I can't help but be like, well, how does your business work? You know, <laughs> are you making money? Like, what's your profit model? Like, I, I just can't help but sort of learn those things. So I guess, like I said, I've kind of always had it in me. Primal Supply was, um, as my second business, I think early on, um, you know, we're almost five. I started the business in June of 2016. And I think early on, it did kind of feel like, okay, you know, I, I've had some really great models. Like, you know, the butcher shop that I worked at the local butcher shop in Berkeley, um, really amazing, thoughtful owners, really well-run business. Um, you know, they've always been kind of like organized and forward-thinking, and that was uh, you know working in there, and then sort of applying things I learned there to the shop that I was running. I think a combination of all of those experiences, I felt like okay, I, I do know what I'm doing. You know, I know how to start this new small business, and I started it with like one employee in my Subaru, um, <laughs> but we have over five years grown to be, um, you know, we've grown to be, I have about 20 employees. I have three locations. I have two vehicles. Um, you know, we've grown to be massive. So I think like early on, I felt like I was what I was doing and I felt like I was applying past experiences, but as we've grown, and I think particularly in the last two to three years as the business has really scaled, um, I have really felt like so many of these things I am facing, challenges for the first time and they're really different and those things that I would not have foreseen you know as as sort of but the tiny business we were that we're facing now so so now I feel like I'm really like in this second phase of like you know starting a business is one thing growing a business is a totally other thing and even just becoming like a leader you know like a leadership it's I was um I've always worked as part of small teams so like when I only had five employees and I was working in the room with them and I could kind of lead by example and do the work with them. That was one way of working. But now it's like I have 20 employees, multiple departments, and they're in three locations and I can't be in all three of them every day. So, you know, you have to really think about how to structure like operations and things like that. Um, And that's, that's like, that's all new. And that's definitely something that I am, 
I feel like I'm learning every day. I, I value advisors. I read what I can, but yeah, holy shit. Am I figuring out as I go? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a roller coaster, and, and I think you're, I mean, I, that has also been my experience. I completely agree with you with that. There's, it's such a different skill set to start a business as it is to run a business, or at the very least, the things that you need to learn to start the business uh, just become less relevant and you need to learn a whole set of new things to figure out how to navigate that growth. Um, I do want to talk more about that, but I also wanted to hear uh, what it was about butchery or about meat in general that that you found so particularly interesting. I mean, the, that story of somebody leaving a, a career in, you know, an office or a, a desk-oriented career to go to culinary school and start to cook is pretty common. But but it's pretty rare that you come across somebody who who says, "I want to deal with dead animals all day." So how did you? <laughs> how, how did what was it about about meat that that you found so interesting? Yeah, I mean, it was really farming that brought me to meat, to be honest. Um, I think it was somewhat coincidental. I, I've i always cooked, like I've cooked since, I've never cooked professionally. I mean, now I've been a food professional for a decade, but um, I, you know, I never worked in kitchens or anything like that. But I, since, you know, a young age, and I don't even really, you know, my family, um, you know, we always, we cooked and we ate dinner together, but I wouldn't say either of my parents were like people who modeled, you know, like a love for cooking kind of culinary people that I, that I learned from. It was just something personal. Um, so, so like I said, I've always done it. And even, you know, I wouldn't say I was even like a meat person. People, there's, there, those people exist. Like they're my favorite customers, <laughs> you know, the people who are just like so stoked on meat and they're so interested and they, they love grilling and they love smoking and they love meat projects. And of course I love all those things now. Um, but it wasn't, I did not have like a personal passion for that, that made, that made me think like, I love this thing so much. That's why I want to learn it. It really was the farming side. Um, I was just so, as someone who was building more and more of a relationship with where my food came from, you know, who grew it, where could I get it? What was sort of, you know, sort of the availability and source of it. That was something that always fascinated me. And I think just because meat was the thing that was the most challenging. It was the most, uh, you know, irregular in availability. It was really like, I think my, my like troubleshooting problem solving personality was that was the thing I decided to, to hone in on. And, and in time I have very much love, developed love for meat and butchery. Um, you know, really the, the need for me to truly learn and understand all the ways that you could cook and prepare meat so that I can be educated in terms of how we handle it, how we prepare it to set our customers up for success so that I can be an educator now, you know, both to my team and to my customers. Um, you know, that's been just sort of like a decade long pursuit. Um, and the craft of butchery, it's just sort of coincidental. I didn't really know getting into it, but I spent like my entire childhood essentially training to be a professional dancer. Like I, I started dancing at a young age. I took it really seriously. By high school, I was only going to school part-time and I was in a pre-professional ballet company and Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I basically, at the, at the ripe age of 18, 19, I, I burnt out and I switched gears to graphic design. But I, I bring that up in that I have um, dance and ballet in particular, uh, not unlike martial arts or other things, um, very independent, very discipline oriented. And obviously I spent, you know, the first, um, you know, almost two decades of my life really working on muscle memory and like physical control and then as a graphic designer, uh, you know, it's all attention to detail and, and problem solving and, and all of these things. It's like, you know, the universe was basically like preparing me for this path because I took all of those sort of skills and, and, and practices that I had in my life thus far. And when I started cutting meat, you know, it was still really hard. It's a lot to learn. And there's there's no way it's definitely one of those 5,000 hour things. You know, like there's there's no shortcut. Like you have to actually repeat things over and over and over again to get good at them. But, um, you know, some people are natural and some people aren't like my ability to kind of like, you know, take the muscle memory and remember a movement in my hands was fairly natural to me. Um, and I liked the physicality of being back on my feet every day and working with my hands after sitting at a desk. So I don't know. It's just like personally and physically, it turned out that I, I clicked with butchery. And I think that the greater, um, more complicated <laughs> piece of whole animal butchery and this crazy like puzzle of how do we use everything and not waste things. And some things are easy and some things are hard and some things you have too much of and not enough. Like that, that really spoke to the other side of me. That's that kind of like, you know, problem solution type person. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a, a, at least in the way that professional cooks or butchers talk about meat, there's an awareness of, of the muscle rather than just sort of meat as something you would eat. 
And so I, I wonder if, if like your training in dance and thinking about how different muscles worked in the body, understanding how they all fit together, uh, if that made a difference in, in your ability to understand how, how an animal fits together and how all of those muscles work and then ultimately how they're going to taste or how they're going to, how they're going to be cooked best. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, the, the anatomy is, is very real. And it's like, this is actually like one of my favorite things to talk about when I teach butchery classes is that I think that even from a high level, if you can, you know, we, it, it's become so easy for people to separate the meat on the plate from the animal than it once was. And, and I don't think that anybody should be, any person should be expected to necessarily like have it in them and take the life of an animal. I don't, I don't think we all need to be able to do that. You know, some of us can, some of us can't we do need to at least acknowledge and respect that that was part of the process, you know? So you, it's like funny that I can see sometimes by even just starting to talk about like, what do muscles do in the life of an animal? Because that's what affects how they will, how they will behave as meat. I can, I sometimes watch people clam up a little bit like, Oh, I don't want to think about that walking around. And it's like, well, you gotta, <laughs> cause, cause that's, that's what it was, you know? Um, we're, we're carnivores. We are, we actually eating beings. Um, we try to, we try to be as respectful and humane in the process as we can, but um, but yeah, but so the thing I love to address is that the way that a muscle works in life um, affects the way that it will cook. So, you know, think muscles that don't work very hard, um, they they don't have, um, they don't build up like, you know, connective tissue and sinew and all of these things that cause toughness. And also like the muscles themselves are not continually con- expanding and contracting in life, right? Um, so they're they're not worked, which means that they're tender. Um, so when you, so they're going to be quick cooking, they're going to be tender, but the flavor is probably going to be pretty mild because none of that stuff built up. Um, on the other hand, a muscle that works really hard in the life of an animal and is going to build up sinew, connective tissue, you know, all of, all of that, um, more, more like, you know, woven tight ingrained muscle fiber from, you know, it's like if you bulked out, (laughs) uh, those are going to be the types of things they are not going to be quick cooking. They're going to take hours for you to braise them, stew them, smoke them, whatever, to like gently allow that muscle to relax and become tender. But all of that stuff, when it renders amounts to flavor. So it's like funny because I'll be demonstrating this and I'm like touching parts of my body and saying like, you know, so, and, and it's funny that you asked me this question because I never really thought about it in dance, but, you know, a dancer thinks a lot about how they carry themselves in posture. And we're always kind of thinking about alignment and all these other things. So I've always kept talking about like pork chops and New York strip steaks, right? Like that's like the loin is really the muscles that run along the back of an animal. And we as humans who stand up and hopefully practice good posture every day, we work those really hard. You know, they, they, those muscles like keep us upright. But if you crawled around on all fours all day, you wouldn't have a very strong back, you know, and that's basically what an animal does. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Like you just you have to kind of you have to sort of imagine these things. And even between different animals, you know, um, lambs and goats are like they really love to like scramble and climb and play and do things like that. So they're the front, you know, their front uh, legs are going to be significantly more like built up than their rear legs. Um, you know, beef, not, you know, they sort of kind of meander on all four. So there's not as dramatic a difference between like a front shank and a back, back shank. Um, muscular, they're different. But uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. It's definitely like a thing where you kind of have to be able to understand and visualize how these muscles uh, fit together. And you maybe need to kind of feel it on yourself to think about like, okay, if I was to like lean over this way and do this thing, like how hard would this part of me be working? Like, for example... Uh, if we worked, walked on all fours all day, um, our neck would work so hard to hold our head up. And that's why like the neck or collar, as it's also often referred to, is an incredibly flavorful but slow cooking part of every animal. I could go on about this all day, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, not, to, not to get too gruesome, but after having worked as a, a chef, I, um, I worked for Doctors Without Borders doing logistics and, and had the opportunity to observe uh, some some surgery uh, and and was really struck by how familiar the the muscles of the human body as I was seeing them you know in the operating room reminded me of of meat that I had handled in restaurant kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was not expecting <laughs> it. It's a bit and, gruesome, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So anyway, um, uh, Matt, no, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. 
Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And my guest this week is Heather Merrill Thomason, butcher and founder of Primal Supply Meats in Philadelphia. Um, I, I also wanted to ask about some of the effect of, of COVID and the pandemic on, on the meat supply chain. I think this, is, this has been uh, sort of a, a, what I hope would be a turning point in the industrial meat system where, where a very public uh, deaths and, and sort of general lack of care for workers' rights uh, kind of came to the fore in a way they really had never done or haven't since, I don't know, Upton Sinclair in the jungle. Uh, what, 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 what's your take on, on what has happened in meat over the last year and, and how has it been different for, for the way that you operate as opposed to you know, big industrial processors? Um, well, first of all, I just want to, I love to talk about the jungle. <laughs> I don't know how recently you've read it or the <laughs> listeners probably, have read it, but if I you probably read it in high school, yeah. so not recently at all. Well, I recommend a reread because I also read it in high school and then I read it again a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, it's wild. I mean, I think if you like care at all about food, where your food comes from and you, you, you like, it's actually, it's a great read and it will really, uh, I don't know. It's, it's really strange and sad, I guess, um, how much of our, the sort of regulation and, and sort of things that happen in our industrial system were in response to that, and they haven't changed since. You know, so like some of the problems still exist, or we have these like really crippling, like massive blanket federal regulations to try to prevent some of the wrongdoings that just they're, you know, it's like they don't apply to small producers, but we're all have to follow them. So anyway, that's, that's my thoughts on the jungle, but read the jungle. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so... It was really appalling. Um, you know, I am aware of the ills of industrial farming and industrial meat production, obviously. Um, I have spent, you know, it's what I, my life is dedicated now to um, meat and, but a different type of meat. And it's a funny conversation because it happens all the time. And I have to, people ask me questions and they'll ask me questions that are just so general about meat, about meat's impact on the environment, about the flavor of meat, about cooking meat. And I always have to start you know, it's somebody at a dinner party casually that's like, oh, I shop at Costco all the time and I love to get this. And what do you think about it? And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is such a loaded topic. But but to start, you know, not all meat is the same. We're really talking about apples and oranges, you know, and even our industries like they we don't work together. We're not in the same. We are we're like sort of parallel. You know, um, the only thing we have in common is that we all cut and sell meat, the way in which our supply chains are built, the way in which we process, handle work in all ways is very different. And I have chosen to take this, you know, I could definitely get myself worked up every single day if I wanted to just like dig in and read about the ills and the terrible things with be it the animals or the people, um, or even, you know, the environment that has to do with the industrial meat processing industry. And I've chosen intentionally not to, um, you know, I kind of, maybe I'm slightly more educated than the average person, but like, if you've seen any of the documentaries about it, we probably know about the same thing. I've definitely chosen to focus my time and energy. I only have so much time for learning and reading on the positive and on what I do. So I, don't, I really don't claim to be an expert on what's wrong with the other side of the, of the meat world. Um, I do know a lot about what's amazing and great and restorative about in terms of agriculture, economy, you know, health of what we do. And when, when we started hearing stories in the spring about what was happening with the industrial meat processing plants, you know, any, the, the, just like, 
I, I was sort of in this like news hole all through the spring in a way that was sort of new for me. I was just so, there was so much to be done to, um, you know, guide my business and my team through the pandemic in the early days when we all didn't really know what we were dealing with that the thing that gave me like a sense of control was to just try to know as much as possible. So I would wake up every morning and I'd read like everything I could find in the news about COVID, um, be it, you know, sort of the virus itself or how it was impacting food supply chains and things like that. And, um, you know, I was really absorbing a lot of this. And I, there was a month where I couldn't open one, if not three publications without seeing these terrible stories and statistics about the number of workers that were getting sick, um, you know, in the industrial manufacturers and then seeing, um, you know, the government and Trump like pass regulations to keep them working. And then to start to hear, you know, these stories of this idea that because they were suffering from labor shortages, because the market, because like, you know, the actual supply chain that moves product from the processor to the grocery store shelves was kind of breaking down and crumbling um, because, you know, this idea that I, that like these larger systems are not flexible. So why were we pouring milk down the drain? Why were we burying uh, vegetables under the ground or why were we euthanizing animals? It's because everything that was supposed to go to the, um, you know, food service and hospitality, which had shut down, had a different pack size and a different truck it went on and all these other things. And it's not so simple to just like repack it and divert it to grocery stores, right? So like grocery store shelves are empty. Animals are quite literally being euthanized because they've lost their market for them and or the processors are so short on labor that they can't keep, keep up. And sick people are being encouraged to go back to work over and over again. And it's all, you know, this kind of too big to fail, too big to flex, like corrupt subsidized system, right? And it's all, and it's cheap meat. It's like people's desire for cheap meat. And it's not even like the people's fault because like, you know, it's been offered to them for so long that, that they know no better. But chicken breasts, you know, costing $1.99 or something is like, that's not real. That's not real. That's not what it costs to raise, to, to like feed and raise an animal or to process it or to package it or to move it on a truck. It's all subsidized in different ways. You know, it's literally government subsidies, but also sacrificing the, you know, health and wellness of the animals and the people to kind of find shortcuts to make it faster and cheaper. And that's always been the way, right? And what made me so angry, I had this like moment and I, I wrote like a kind of passionate Instagram post that a lot of people started calling me about afterwards. And I, it's not really been my style to like soapbox speak my mind, but I just couldn't take it anymore because I was waking up every day and saying to my husband, like, I am reading these articles and this is atrocious. Like people and animals are just dying every day and nobody's talking about it. Like nobody else is just like, you know, wringing their hands or saying, what can I do? At least and some people were, but it was not a public conversation. And it's like, you turn on the news and it wasn't the, the headlining story every day. And I just really didn't understand it. So I found that incredibly frustrating. But at the same time, I will say that while I, I guess to answer kind of to sort of answer your question, I wish that there was more of a public kind of outcry standing up, you know, sort of fighting against the system in the way that we've seen about other things against, you know, factory farming and, and that level of meat production. And, and sadly, there wasn't. Um, but what did happen is that a lot of people, a lot of people did see this as individuals and start to ask like, wow, do I want to support that? Or like, is that where I want things to come from? And we saw over this past year, more customers come to us, like basically kind of come over from the dark side and walk into my butcher shop and think about spending more money on their food and ask about where things come from and decide that this is what they wanted to support than I've ever seen in you know my, my 10 years now of dedicating um, myself to, to this local food system. And that's huge. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like, we are like the little, the little guys fighting the fight one person at a time. Like, you know, the person that walks into my butcher shop that has discovered for environmental reasons or for health reasons, or maybe just for quality reasons that they think that maybe they would like to spend a little bit more and start buying this local meat. Like that's a, that's a thing that happens to us. And it's our job to kind of welcome them in, make them feel comfortable, educate them and like convert them. <laughs> and, and it's what I do all the time, but it's usually, you know, a trickle of people every so often. And they really came to us in droves. And some of those people just came to us out of convenience because the grocery store shelves were empty and ours weren't. But some of them came to us for more, um, you know, sort of deeper and I guess like mission oriented reasons. And they're still here with us today. So 
while like we we didn't effectively see like the dismantling or crumbling of of that industrial system which would have been nice because it would have been an opportunity to kind of break it down and build it back up again i think anybody in the in, in sort of local food and especially uh small craft butchery my colleagues around the country we've all talked about this our customer base has kind of grown as much as double this year and there is no amount of marketing or education in the past that could have converted that many people so it's it it was a win for us in a lot of ways, but but yeah, it's just like it's still happening, you know, and it's it's really sad. Yeah, and I think this is going to be. I mean, I hope this is one of those uh, changes that just happens slowly, whether it happens over a few years or really it's happening over you know a hundred and a hundred plus years. This this realization that industrialized meat production doesn't make sense. Meat isn't something that can be made in a factory. It doesn't work well like that. And, and there are all of these shortcuts, obviously, that, that big companies have taken to, to force it to work. But it's, it's, a, it's an awkward fit at, at best. I guess one of the, the questions that often comes up next in this conversation, I'm sure you've been asked this before, is, is what about capacity or what about uh, volume does does this better meat system that that you exist in and have built your business around does it does it scale or or how does it um, how how can we move the industrial system to something better to something closer to what you're doing yeah that's that's a good question and I mean there is a limit to the scale of what small producers can do and we're not we are not going to be answer we're not going to solve the problem I mean there's major there's major um, hurdles for us like there aren't enough small processors. So, you know, people could continue to decide that they're going to learn butchery or they're going to farm animals. But if we don't have that like key piece in the supply chain of people who will harvest them for us, um, you know, we can only grow so much. And that's, that's really complicated. You know, uh, the slaughterhouse is, it's not desirable work. It's not really profitable work. And the processors that exist around the country, the small niche processors, a lot of them are old. Um, like the people who are running them are old. And these are gener- it's generations of people who like their, their kids don't want to take it over. They're, they're not even really able to sell. They're just kind of closing. So year after year, we've watched the number of small processors go down. And that is something that separately needs to be built back up if the small, um, the number of small meat producers want, will grow in our country in time. But th- this business model, my business model, I mean, I'm already sort of, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much we can responsibly scale before we sort of hit this moment where that's as big as we can get. Um, and I've always been kind of focused on my region. Like people ask me all the time, oh, will you go to New York? Will you go to DC? Will you go other places? And it's like, you know, I just, I don't think that's in the cards for us because it's not, it's not fair or reasonable to think that my, the region uh, in Pennsylvania and, and surrounding Southeastern Pennsylvania, where we are, that's growing meat for us can't scale indefinitely to meet a market demand. I actually think that for the small sort of niche meat processors, our model is more replicable than it is scalable. I've always thought since the first day of Primal Supply and, you know, kind of going back to that entrepreneurial piece, you know, you, you started businesses and people, people ask you questions early on, like, well, what's your kind of growth strategy? What's your goal? Like, are you trying to grow a business that gets big and profitable and saleable or, you know, what's, what's, what are you trying to do? Is it franchisable? Is it? Yeah. The worst questions as an early stage entrepreneur, they're just miserable. You don't have any answers. Yeah. You're like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I have always told people, you know, my, I was never, we're not a tech company. Like I was never trying to grow something that would sort of hit this like infinite profit and, you know, uh, sell for a super high value. I also never really saw us, um, just scaling indefinitely and getting very large. I always said that, you know, for me, if I could, the moment of like true success and impact for me will be if I can scale Primal Supply to be responsible, like in in its size for the way that it is using the resources of our region and then serving a market and that those things are balanced. You know, I'd like, I'd like to scale as much as possible in our region, but, but not, you can't let those things get out of balance. And there will be a moment where we'll kind of hit a threshold. And when we do, if my business is sustainable um, and in the sense, not just environmentally sustainable, but in the sense where, you know, it's, it's profitable, it takes care of the people that work for it. And it's something that I would actually endorse other people copying because I can say, hey, if you can build it to this, it will take care of you and everyone in it. That would be like, for me, that would be it. Like I would made it. And I, <laughs> and then, and then of course people ask you questions like, well, would you franchise? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I just want to like document and share the model for other people to go after it. Like, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. But to kind of get back to what you were asking me, um, I think that 
it's not small producers that are going to save the world. We are always going to be niche. We are always going to be kind of this alternative. And we're always, we're also never going to be accessible to everyone. Um, I listened to your episode with Mark Bittman recently, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, I mean, you know, he's awesome. (laughs) And, And it was a great show. But I did really appreciate how much he talks about the cost of food and the true cost of food. And it's real, like food has to cost more. And at the same time, not everybody can afford it. People ask me all the time about food access. And it's like, I care deeply about that. And yet like my business has an, has an alternative mission, you know, of, of sort of local, sustainable, environmental, you know, that sort of stuff. And, and unfortunately I can't do both. Like as an individual, I can sort of do work to try to support food access, but as a business primal supply, like those things, I hope at some point in this mission, I will be able to find a place where they can meet, but right now they can't. Um, so there does, the economy of scale is real and there does need to be, uh, you know, meat processors that can work at a scale where they will, you know, get, find efficiencies that can uh, flow through into the cost of the product. Um, So like cheaper meat does need to be available compared to the, you know, the sort of very small batch thing that we do where a small farmer and a small processor and an individual company like mine, you know, all touch this. And there's, um, you know, there's just kind of like, by the time you pay everybody fairly along the supply chain, it has to cost a certain amount. But I think that what we've lost is, um, is the middle, like basically, and it's not just meat, it's, it's all food and a lot of other industries where we watch this happen, where they just keep getting bought up and bought up and bought up until suddenly you, you, you had a hundred medium sized businesses and now you have like five large businesses or extra large businesses. Um, so I, I think really it's like, starting to break it back up again and looking at those like mid-size, you know, large regional companies, that that would be what would work. And and there is somewhere in the middle, kind of the Nyman Ranch model that's, you know, it's, it's better than the horrendous, um, you know, sort of uh, conditions that these animals are raised in in these feedlots. But, you know, it's not necessarily some bucolic, you know, t- you know, rolling pastures, a farmer out, like moving fences and, and 50 pigs at a time. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, where those animals can be treated with care and there can be some consideration for the land and the environment and the impact that they're having on it, but at some scale. And, and I think if we could just kind of like break up the, the massive like conglomerate, you know, factory farms into, if you could take every one of them and break them into a hundred pieces, you'd have some sort of, you know, medium, medium, large farms and processors all over the country that could serve markets closer to them and can be a little bit more flexible and, you know, just sort of, I think, responsible. And I, I think that's like the dream future, but I, I don't know how that happens without, like I said, like you kind of have to break it all down and build it back up again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree with you and, and obviously not having anywhere near the expertise or depth of understanding that you do in the meat industry. I, I've seen uh, similar solutions proposed in, in other industries as well, from fresh veggies to dairy to to I mean, pretty much everything that that the the drive over the last hundred years has been to create these mega corporations that uh, are focused on the wrong thing and, and ultimately are, are not that efficient. I mean, to your to your points earlier in the in, in our conversation, they weren't able to shift uh, to deliver meat to grocery stores when that's what was needed. They they had so you know they had gotten so specialized into the they are still so specialized in the thing that they do. Yeah, and that flexibility is is that lack of flexibility rather is is both to their detriment, but also to ours as consumers, that we can't, we can't get food when we need it. And, um, and a system of, of medium sized, uh, production that, that, uh, is a little more flexible and a little more local and a little more responsive. And like medium, medium isn't even like medium isn't small, you know, it's like my, it's like if my, if my slaughterhouse can, can, uh, process like I don't know, a hundred beef in a day, which I actually think they don't do that many. I want to say it's like around like 70 or something, but let's, let's just for, you know, the, the processor that can process a thousand beef in a day, you know, they have a bigger kill floor. They have more equipment. They have a larger staff. They can still do that respectfully and humanely. And that would still be, you know, significantly more production. That is still so much smaller than the like 10,000 animals a day or whatever inconceivable number it is that they're running through some line where both the animals, the humanity of the animals is not being considered humane handling and the, or the people, you know, where they're just like being asked to move at a grueling pace um, on really risky equipment and all those things, you know, there's like, there's a huge gap. (laughs) And, and the space in the middle is really the space where I think that you can consider, 
you know, so much more the health and, and wellness of both the, you know, the livestock and the workers. And like, you know, when I say regional, I think about like, you know, something that serves the Pacific Northwest, you know, <laughs> or something that serves like a, a, a region in like, you know, the middle, uh, the middle states, you know, or something that's kind of like, we would have two or three of those in the Northeast, you know, that's, again, there's like five companies right now that process almost all the meat for the entire country. That's absurd. There should be 50, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, completely. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's do a little rapid fire fun questions and then fun. we're going to wrap up. This our is heavy. We got to get out of the heaviness. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Uh, tell us about a, a sort of a common meal in your house growing up, something you ate for breakfast or something you ate for lunch, just kind of a, an everyday something that you would eat as a kid. Growing up, um, I will. So growing up, uh, it was like, oh, my gosh, I ate, cereal, I ate a lot of cereal. Well, there's sort of like pre-teenager and post-teenager, you know, because as a, as a post-teenager, I was a very serious dancer who started learning how to like steam my own broccoli uh, things like that. But, um, before that, uh, I, I was like my household, my brother and I, my parents both worked. So like I ate cereal for breakfast. I remember things like bagel bites and pop tarts and all of that kind of stuff. That was just like, uh, as a kid, you were like, I was the, I was the household that my friends came over and they were like, Ooh, you have this stuff. Can we eat it? And we were like, sure. You know, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't know that there was places where like you weren't allowed to have the, those like, um, you know, delicious, yeah. but not so good for you treats. Yeah. Um, how about your desert island kitchen tool? Uh, you're, you're going to a desert island. What do you bring with you? The most important thing. Uh, I hear every single one of your guests is like, only one. Right. All right. You can bring <laughs> as many I, as you want. Whatever. I want to have that <laughs> a suitcase full of Yeah. <laughs> well, no, this is actually kind of a funny question to me because whenever I travel, um, you know, I often like Airbnb or I'll spend like a week in like a beach house rental with my family or something. Um, I always bring my own kitchen because I never trust there's going to be anything good. Like, why do all rentals have glass cutting boards? I don't understand. Like, <laughs> who cuts on glass, you know? So I kind of have my like, I have my like five piece kit that I like never go anywhere where I'm going to cook for more than like a day without. And it contains a chef knife, a cast iron skillet a like medium plastic cutting board, a set of tongs and a microplane because like you always want a microplane and everybody has a microplane. So you're, that's like, that's it. You're definitely <laughs> the most prepared uh, desert island resident of any of the guests we've, we've had. Nobody has ever proposed a kit before, but, but I'm in. Yeah, yeah but I, I will say that if I had to have one, I would assume that I already had a knife on me because if I was going on desert island, I mean, let's be honest, I'm yeah. a butcher. I'd, I'd probably want like an ankle knife. Um, so I could use that for cooking. So if it was just one thing, I would take my cast iron skillet. Um, how about, uh, is, um, how would you recommend that somebody who's interested in learning more about where their meat comes from, um, you know, particularly in, in sort of a, a, a personal way, how, how would you recommend that somebody understand that? I mean, obviously they could read books or, or watch documentaries, but, but is there something that you recommend somebody do to, to be more engaged in their meat supply chain? I mean, it's a really easy question. It's actually like find your local butcher and go shop there, to be honest. Um, I know that's a weird thing to say in the middle of a pandemic where some people aren't comfortable being places in person. But um, in normal times, you know, we have actually the craft butchery scene, for lack of a better word, has really grown. And there's I doubt there's a city, you know, there, there's very few cities at this point that don't have at least a small butcher shop. Um, and if it's not that, if you have a farmer's market, there's probably some farmers that are, you know, raising meat and kind of doing that thing where they're bringing it frozen in coolers. So it's really just like, just go, you know, kind of, it matters where you spend your dollars, you know, and this is like kind of even revisiting that COVID thing. You, every time that you go and you spend money on food, you're choosing to support a thing and you're choosing not to support something else. So like find who's sourcing and cutting and selling local meat near you and choose to spend some of your dollars supporting them. And while you're there, talk to them. Cause that's like, we all love that, you know? Like the butcher at the counter loves nothing more than you to say like, tell me more where this came from or how would I cook this thing? And the farmer would feel the same way. So really it's just kind of like get out and build relationships and ask questions. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a, a great answer. And if you happen to be in Philly, um, promise plenty. Mm -hmm. um, all right, last question. Um, what's the, the, the most 
unloved or or undervalued cut of meat? What do you like to cook that other people don't realize how delicious it is? Can I just tell you that I really thought you were going to ask me about vegetables and I was really prepared to talk about eggplant. <laughs> well, we can talk about vegetables too, but... <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, um, sirloin. Sirloin. I am a champion of the sirloin. Um, it is... You can have pork sirloins, you can have beef sirloin, top sirloin it's often referred to. Even lambs have sirloins, but it's kind of less common. They're usually just attached to the leg. But um, in that whole kind of what it does in life is how it, you know, cooks or tastes as meat. The sirloin is like the confluence of all of sort of everything. You know, it's like it's the end of the loin, but it's the beginning of the leg. So it's like not it's it does a little bit more work than those fancy loin steaks that melt in your mouth that don't taste that much. So there's more flavor, but it's not yet becoming an active, hardworking muscle where you have to cook it low and slow. So I just think you kind of get the best of both worlds. And you also get a lot of value, like a top sirloin steak is really just kind of one step over on the animal from a New York strip. So in a lot of ways, it cooks a lot like a New York strip, but you're going to probably purchase it for like at least a third of the price less. So that's like, if, if I'm alone and I'm having like, you know, steak night with me, um, <laughs> I'm definitely going to eat a top sirloin steak. And I love pork sirloin steaks and they're both suitable with roast too. So. I, I have I have so many more questions now that I, you know just occurred to me around the, the the marketing of different cuts of meat and why anybody is spending more on one part of an animal than another. But uh, we will oh, have to so save those. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> we'll have to save you those know, for another like, conversation. Yeah, yeah, market demand and all of these things. You know, there's yeah. it's like, do we have too much of it or not enough of it? And what do people value? You know, Americans about value convenience and tenderness. So, you know, there's some things that it's sort of like, why does that cost so much? And it's like, well, at the end of the day, everybody wants it and everybody's going to be willing to pay that for it. I mean, it's like anything else, right? Yep. Um, so. <laughs> and on that note, um, <laughs> I want to say thank you to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. You can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can reach Valerie uh, also on Instagram, at Foodie in New York. Um, and most of all, Heather, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, tell our listeners where they can find you and purchase your products and, and follow your work. Oh, yes. Thanks for asking. Okay. Uh, well, you do have to be in Philadelphia or the surrounding regions to find us. We are not shipping meat yet. Maybe one day I'll work up the nerve to put meat in the mail, but I'm not there yet. Uh, but in or around Philadelphia, you can order online from us for pickup or home delivery. Uh, just head to primalsupplymeats.com and it will send you, uh, tell you everything you need to know and, and help you start shopping. We also have three fiscal retail locations. One is in South Philly on East Pashunk Avenue. One is in Fishtown on Frankfurt Avenue. And one is in Brewery Town, tucked up by the Gerard Bridge and the zoo. <laughs> so uh, we are, you know, obviously limiting customers and practicing COVID uh, precautions, but we are open for walk-in business. So, you know, walk in, check it out, ask a butcher a question. Awesome. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for joining me. And <laughs> uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.